Hi, welcome to New Hope Community Church Online. The sermon you are about to hear was originally given by Pastor Chuck Wilson. New Hope Community Church, to know, to live, and to share Jesus Christ. We're going to start off with a video. We were at the beach playing mini golf, and if, uh, if you're listening to this on the podcast, uh, watch the video first. It's a little Laurel playing mini golf. And I felt so sorry for the poor kid. She she went from a very high to a low in one hole. I'll let you watch the video, then I'll explain. Show that one more time. (laughs) Have you ever had that happen? Everything's going great. Everything's going great. Life is a hole in one, right? Everything's going great. And all of a sudden, you crash. You ever had that happen? And when that happens, do you, do you ever say, why me, God? Why did this have to happen? You ever, you ever say that? We're going to see that that's what happens to Elijah today. And I think we're all going to be able to relate to this one. The title is, have you ever been disappointed with God? Have you ever been disappointed with God? First Kings 19, 3 to 4. And I'm going to pray again. Father, we just pray that your Holy Spirit would take the word through your mercy and grace and wherever we're at spiritually today that whether it's climbing out of a hole or falling down or getting back up or or taking a step forward whatever it is today father we pray that your Holy Spirit would help us through your word through your mercy and grace we pray that in Jesus name amen okay so Elijah had a hole in one and then he fell on his face as we all know he prays down fire and rain from heaven and then his life is threatened and then he's now so down that he prays a very different prayer right first kings 19 verses 3 and 4 is what we're going to focus on today elijah was afraid he gets threatened and says elijah was afraid and ran for his life when he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there. While he himself went a day's journey into the desert, he came to a broom tree, sat down under it, and prayed that he might die. I have had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I am no better than my ancestors. Elijah hits rock bottom. He hits spiritual rock bottom. And I think we call relate to this he staggers into Beersheba here which is in the extreme south of Judah okay now look at the map here I'll pull up the map he here is Mount Carmel here he goes over to Jezreel runs his 18 mile run gets threatened and then he flees all the way down to Beersheba here okay that's where he ends up and we're going to keep coming back to that map as we go here now why did he go to Judah Because 
remember, Israel had split into two different countries. Remember that? After Solomon, it split into two different countries as God's judgment, division. And so you had the northern kingdom, Israel, and the southern kingdom, Judah. Judah was more faithful, had the more faithful king, had the only faithful kings. Israel was a totally apostate at this time. But uh, he, he, so he knew he had to cross to get away from Ahab and Jezebel. He goes to another country, crosses the border, okay? But... It, then it probably dawns in him when he gets down here to Beersheba that, wait a minute, I'm in Judah and I'm far from Ahab, but Jehoshaphat is the king here. And Jehoshaphat, King Jehoshaphat had jumped into a, nobody, nobody watches Looney Tunes, he had jumped into a bad partnership. Remember, jumping Jehoshaphat, right? That's where you get it from. He jumped into a bad, nobody watches Looney Tunes. Well, anyway, it's an old saying, Looney Tunes didn't invent it, but they used to have a lot of fun with it. Jumping Jehoshaphat, I used to love that one. Anyway, this is, this is who they're talking about. Jehoshaphat, this is the guy uh, in Looney Tunes. Uh, and now, Jehoshaphat was a very good king, but he had jumped into a bad partnership. He made a bad alliance, and Elijah probably is remembering this on his, as he runs here into Judah. In fact, in 2 Kings 8, 16, it says, this is what happens. Verse 16, in the fifth year of Joram, son of Ahab, king of Israel... When Jehoshaphat was king of Judah, Jehoram, son of Jehoshaphat, began his reign as king of Judah. He was 32 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem eight years. He walked in the ways of the kings of Israel as the house of Ahab had done, for he married a daughter of Ahab. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Jehoshaphat set up a, an alliance with Ahab, and they had the kids. His son married a daughter of Ahab, and that did not go well. He made a bad, bad partnership which ended up haunting him and his legacy and Judah for many many years it ended up haunting them for many years that's why in 2nd Corinthians 6:14 in 2nd Corinthians 6:14 it says do not be yoked together with unbelievers for what do righteousness and wickedness have in common or what fellowship can light have with darkness the word yoked, most of you didn't grow up on a farm. When I was a kid, there were yokes laying around still. There was these, these wooden yokes laying around. And what it was is the, when they, before they had tractors, they would plow and do work with, with ox, the ox team. And they had these wooden bars, basically, with like, like little spots to put over the yoke, over the, the ox's neck. And they would harness them into this wooden yoke, and they would pull the plows and pull everything they needed to do. They would pull them by yoking the ox together. And, but the, the thing about being yoked is once those ox were locked together, where did they have to go? Together, you know, we had to go wherever. With the, and the strongest ox usually ended up pulling the other one in a different direction. They had, to, they had to go wherever the strongest ox went. And that's why the Bible warns us, says, don't be yoked together with an unbeliever. Whether it's a marriage, whether it's a business partnership, whether it's a close friendship. We can be friends with non-Christians, of course. We, I have many, many good non-Christian friends. But not to be too close not to have a soul tied too close of a bond. Don't be yoked because what will happen is we'll have to constantly battle. There'll be a constant battle. We'll be constantly pulled in the wrong direction. I could tell you so after how many years of ministry, 35 years of ministry, whatever it is, I could tell you stories. I warned someone, don't marry this person. They're not a Christian. You're a Christian. You're yoking yourself with an unbeliever. It cannot 
go well. Down the road, God could turn things around, but there's going to be a lot of pain in the process. Don't, be, won't, don't form this partnership. That partnership, you're, you're going with a non-Christian, they have a whole different mindset. Don't form this partnership in business, and, and on and on. You know, you're getting too close as a friend with this person, I'm seeing some bad things. And I tell you, the people who don't listen, the, the stories, the pain, the struggles, the discipline, we all have done it, right? We all know what I'm talking about. But I've, I could tell you so many stories of the pain that that caused because people ignore this warning, don't be yoked. And that's what happened. Good King Jehoshaphat jumped into this bad relationship and, and it ended up haunting them. Now, and this is what it happened to jumping Jehoshaphat here. He's yoked to evil Ahab and Queen Jezebel now, which means that Elijah, who thought... And the first rundown, he thought he's getting away from trouble. He's really jumped out of the frying pan into the fire because he knows that Jehoshaphat will probably jump at a. I got, okay, that's my last time. Well, jump at the chance to, uh, uh, to turn Elijah over to Ahab. Why? Because they're in-laws, and you want to please your in-laws, right? I know if John and Joanne, if they, you know, lost lost something, you know. A, Cow got out. They don't have cows. But cow got out. I mean, want to get it back to them, you know, take it back, you know. Uh, you want to please your in-laws, right? I remember when Matthew and Juliana first started dating, and John was having fun with that. He was always, like, threatening Matthew, you know. You know, like, you know just dropping little hints. You better not, you know, up hurt her, upset her. Uh, and, and Matthew would say, yeah, I'm a little nervous about Mr. Hoff, you know. He... He, he's, he's, he's scaring me a little bit. I go, don't make him mad, Matthew. I played into it, you know. I played into it. We were having fun. I go, don't make him mad. I've seen him when he's mad. Ooh, he's got a bad temper. And, and, and I've, been, I've been out target shooting with him. You don't want to make him mad. You don't want to make him mad. So, uh, so you know, we had a lot of fun with that. But, but uh, that's the in-laws. You have this connection. And, and so he's probably very nervous. And that's why Elijah realizes that, and that's why in 1 Kings 19, I'm going to read it again, 1 Kings 19, 3 and 4, what he decides, Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there while he himself went a day's journey into the desert. That's why he went further. He leaves his servant and jogs another day into the desert. So he really wants to get away from any connection with Judah, any, any chance that he, Jehoshaphat could, could uh, you know, send him on back to, to King Ahab. He's worried about that with King Jehoshaphat. So he jogs another day into the desert. The servant is probably thrilled that he said, hey, you stay here. Because he's probably exhausted. Let's look at the map again. Let's look at the map. He's probably exhausted. They already went from Mount Carmel over here to Jezreel, 18 miles. Now, we know Elijah ran that. He had a supernatural run out, ran the horses. Servant, we don't have any record of him running, so he probably caught a ride on one of the chariots or rode a donkey or something. Anyway, he didn't run that. But then he had to, when, when Elijah decides to go from Jezreel all the way down here to Bathsheba, that's 100 miles. 100 miles. Now, we know he ran for his life. How far did he run? We don't know. But even if he walked that far or jogged that far with his servant, that, this is probably going to be pretty exhausting, right? 100 miles. And then after 18 miles and 100 miles, even if he walked through that rugged territory, but they probably were nervous, uh, moving pretty fast, they're at least jogging, right? Uh, it says he ran for his life. Now, now Elijah is planning a one-day jog into the desert, into the wilderness into the desert here. And he's planning that one way, and not only that, it's a one-way 
ticket run. He doesn't plan to come back. This is a suicide run. Those of you who are in sports know with the coaches at the end of practice, they always had suicides. Remember that? And you just finished this hard practice, and, and at the end of that practice, they had suicide, some kind of wicked run. They had to do some kind of sprinting that would just leave you turning to jelly, leave you throwing up, leave you just exhausted. You know, it was horrible. And, and remember, remember when you're getting ready to do those suicides, and every once in a while the coach would come by and, and say to the whole team, you guys worked so hard today, no suicides today. Hey, yay, all excited. This is what the, the this servant must have felt like. Yay, I don't have to go on the suicide run with Elijah after that 100-mile you know, trek we just took, right? Very excited. This is good news for the servant that he leaves him, but it's very bad news for Elijah because now Elijah is completely alone. He is totally isolating himself from Everyone else, the last person he had a connection with, he's completely isolated, which is never healthy, is it? It's never healthy. When we pull away from others, whether it's pulling away from Christian fellowship, I see people do it all the time, whether it's pulling away from Christian friends, whether it's pulling away from our spouse, whether it's pulling away from communion with God, whenever that happens, we end up in a desert. We end up in a spiritual desert dry place and we find ourselves where in the wilderness we find ourselves right where elijah is this is all a physical picture of a spiritual thing right we find ourselves in a spiritual desert a spiritual wilderness and not only that we die spiritually if we stay too long alone in that spiritual wilderness we die spiritually I've seen it many, many times. I've been on the edge myself, right? Which is exactly what Elijah wanted to do. And it isn't ironic. He runs for his life. He runs to save his life. He gets away and then he says, now, now kill me. Take away my life, right? Uh, it's crazy. He's running to, away to save his life and now he says, kill me. Take my life. But when we are out of communion, we do the, and say the craziest things. We are delusional, right? Think about the times we've been out of communion with God, with fellowship, and we just do the, we look back and say, how could I have thought that? How could I have done that? It's because we're out of communion, right? And we do the, and that's what Elijah is showing us here. First Kings 19, I'm going to read it again because this is wild. Verse 3, Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there while he himself went a day's journey into the desert. He came to a broom tree, sat down under it, and prayed that he might die. I have had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. Elijah was disappointed. He was disappointed with life. He was disappointed with God, really, right? He's really disappointed with God. And because of that, he just wants to die. He felt like his life was a complete failure. Like he had completely failed. He, the revival had fizzled, fire from heaven, rain, and then the revival fizzled. In his mind, he had flopped, run away from whatever he should have been. The only thing he's good at anymore is running. 18 miles, 100 miles, then he jogs in the desert. How far did he get in a day? We don't know. 10, 15, 20 miles in the desert. And Elijah is disappointed with God, with life, with God. 
and he prays to die. And then the next verse, which I'm not going to read till next week, is he dies, right? No, he did not die. The end of the story, I'm giving it away. He, Elijah did not die. God did not answer his prayer ever. Ever. In fact, just the opposite. He never dies. Wait till we get to that. He gets taken up to heaven in the fire chariot. He prays to die and God, no, he doesn't kill him. He never lets him die. Isn't that crazy? What a story. He never dies. And just the opposite. That's the positive in this sad sequel. Another positive is that he still turned to God. He was still praying. Even though he wanted to die, he's still praying. He's still talking to God. We'll get to that back in a minute. Have you ever been this disappointed with life? You don't have to shake your head. We all know we have, right? Have we ever been this disappointed with God where we just wanted to die? I have several times, not too long ago, actually, prayed that prayer. God, let me just go to sleep and not wake up. I've been there. We've all been there, haven't we? Some of you might be there today. We all hit that place. How should we handle it? Let's look at a couple of things that jump out at us, lessons from Elijah here. The first thing is when we're disappointed, when we're in a really tough place, don't make it worse. <laughs> don't make it worse. Don't, don't do what Elijah did. Don't pull away from support. Don't pull away from those who love us. Don't pull away from the church family who cares about us. Don't, don't, and especially, don't pull away from God. Don't make it worse by pulling away from even God, communion with God. Don't pull away. And that's the temptation, right? To just pull away. Also, the second thing I, that I just was hit me here is don't let disappointment turn into disillusionment. Don't let, it, don't let the disappointment morph into disillusionment where we lose our faith. Because why do we lose our faith? Because we don't trust God's purpose. We don't trust God anymore. We don't trust his purpose. Here we're disappointed, right? Don't let that morph into disillusionment and lose our faith. I have seen this so many times. I've been on the edge myself. We all have. But I've seen, out of, in the last 35 years, seen so many people do this, morph from the, the, the disappointment into the disillusionment and lose their faith because of it. Because they're disappointed in something that happened, something that God allowed to happen. I saw it with my own son, Ryan. We all know where he ended up, but I'll never forget where it started. It started when his cousin died. From leukemia. And I just remember he couldn't handle that. Because he prayed God would heal him. And he just couldn't understand why God would let that happen. I've seen it happen to many people in the church. I remember years ago there was a guy here who was a faithful leader in our church and his parents both died within a short time of each other of the same thing. I'm not going to say too much. I don't want to connect dots here. But, but I'll never forget. He lost. This guy was a spiritual leader here. And he lost it. He was disappointed in God and he started slipping away and he fell away and his life 
com felt completely apart, and it all was traced back to being disappointed why God took his parents home. He couldn't take it. And I've seen it over and over again. And it's such a dangerous thing if we allow disappointment to go into disillusionment. It reminded me of a story I remember from uh, David Wilkerson. I pulled it out. I saved it from years ago. Uh, it, it, David Wilkerson wrote a, an article on, on a book. It's actually from a book called Aggie. And uh, it, it, I'll just read some, some excerpts from it here, the, this this because he tells it so well. In 1921, two young couples from Sweden decided, answered God's call to go to the mission field in Africa. And at this time, going there was very dangerous. In fact, if you were going to Africa as a missionary, you knew you weren't coming back. You're going to die. There's so many diseases. There were very few converts. It was just so bad there. But they felt God's call. They went to the Belgian Congo, which is now called Zaire. All right? They... Uh, Two different couples, they, they, leave, they decided to lay everything down and, and share the gospel with these people in Zaire. They arrived in the Belgian Congo. They took machetes. There was no path. They had to hack their way through the jungle. To, they, there was a couple, a hunt, they went 100 miles inland, and they did, were looking for these two villages that they knew of, and they decided to take the God. They felt God lead them to take the gospel to those uh, villages, but on the way they got malaria. Everybody had malaria. They got malaria. They were very, very sick, but they kept going. They finally reached the one village, and they said, you can't come in here. The witch doctor said, no, you'll anger our gods. Stay out of our village. Went to the one right next to it. You can't come in here either. Stay out of here. They had nowhere to go. They went right between the two villages, and they cleared a space. They built these mud huts with their malaria, and they settle in, and they start trying to reach these people, and they hit a stone wall. They got so sick that the one couple, the Ericsons, decided that we can't stay here. They left. They couldn't, uh, they couldn't stay there. They went back. They hiked 100 miles back to the, the, the main town, wherever it was, where they had first come in. The other couple, uh, Dave, Dave and Chevet, that was their names. Dave and Chevet, they, they couldn't leave because his wife was pregnant. His wife was pregnant. She had malaria so bad she couldn't travel. So they said, we're going to have to stick it out. They stayed there, and they just kept trying. And the only person that would talk to them was this little African boy who would come every day and spend the day with, with the woman, the, the pregnant mom. And, and she would witness to him, and he seemed like he was understanding, and it seemed like he was responsive and they thought he might have become a Christian. Just this little boy. He would bring them fruit and everything and try to help. Finally, the time came for her to have a, a baby, but she had this raging fever. If you've ever known anything about malaria, it was terrible. Uh, but she gives birth to this little girl, but the birth was so difficult, and with the malaria, she held on for about a week, and then she died. He was crushed. Dave, a flood, the floods, I'm sorry, the floods. David Flood then was so shaken and so upset, he took his wife, he made, he made this little wooden casket, he buried a shallow hole, he put her in it, he's throwing the dirt in, the little boy's next to him crying, he hears a little baby crying in the mud hut, and he lost it. It says he looked down in his anger, bitterness filled his heart, anger rose up in him. He flew into a rage. Why did you allow this, God? My wife was so beautiful. She was so talented. And now she's dead here at 27. I've been here for more than a year in this jungle. And all I have to show is this little boy who follows us around. And I don't even know if he even understands it, really. 
He said, you failed me, God. It's all in the book, Aggie. You failed me, God. What a waste of life. Grabbed the little boy, and he took the little girl, he packed up, and he starts hiking back, hiking back. He hiked 100 miles back to the main town there at the port, and he, and he, and he gets tickets for the boat to go back to Sweden, and he says to the Ericsons who were there still, he says, take this little girl, I can't raise her. And they, the wife had named her just before she died, named her Aina. Uh, Aina, Aina, a Swedish name. Uh, and he hands the baby to them and says, I can't raise her, you raise her. And then he takes, he takes the little boy on the ship and he goes back to Sweden. And he goes back to Sweden and he, and he he's, was so angry. He starts uh, an import business. He goes in the business. He, he turns his back on God. He warns everybody, never mention the word God in front of me. If anybody ever did, he would go into a rage. He started drinking. He became a, a serious alcoholic. He was so angry. A short time after he left Africa, the Ericsons died also. You, go, you went to Africa, you know it was a death sentence. A witch doctor, they think a witch doctor had poisoned them and killed them. So the little girl was left all by herself and an American couple took her. Arthur and, Arthur and Anna Berg took her and started to raise her. And they went to the northern Congo and they renamed her Aggie. That was her name after the Aggie because they didn't follow that Swedish name. Uh, they ended up going on a furlough back to America years later, and they took the little girl with them, and they ended up staying there. They never went back to Africa. They stayed there. She grew up. She married a man called Dewey Hurst, who became the president of Northwest Bible College. But the whole time she's wondering about her father and she's wondering about her family. She tried writing her father in Sweden. He never wrote back, never answered anything. He was too bitter, too angry. She was just wanted to meet her brother. And, and, and meanwhile, he had remarried, this guy had remarried, her father had remarried her, his wife's sister who was living in Sweden. She was godless. She had no heart for the Lord. Married her. They had four more children. So they had four children. They had the other son. The other uh, son they just had become a bitter, bitter group. The other son actually became an alcoholic too, so both father and son become bitter. The children are bitter. The wife, it's just a horrible existence because he was so angry at God. But she's still trying to find him, so she's, she's going to Sweden to see him. She stops in London for a day layover in London before they got to Sweden. They're on a ship, long trip. They stop in London. They had one day over. So they go walking through London, and they hear a, a religious service going on, so they walk on in. It turned out to be a missions convention in London. Inside, there was a black preacher preaching. He was talking about the amazing things that had happened spiritually in the Belgian Congo, in Zaire. And she went up and talked to him after the service, after the mission conference, said, did you ever know the missionaries David and Zve Flood? He said, yes. She is the one who led me to the Lord when I was just a boy. I can never read this. It's such a crazy story. And she said, she goes, but I, and they had a little girl, but I don't know what happened to her. And she says, it's me. They hugged, they wept for joy. She couldn't, he said he had grown up to be a, a missionary evangelist in Zaire there, which now had 100,000 Christians, 32 missions, stations, 
several Bible schools and a, a hospital, 120-bed hospital, all because of the mission. The next day she left for Stockholm. She gets there and she tracks down her brother who is an alcoholic, who is just, life is just a horrible, bitter young man, you know, man, destroyed his life, said this is where dad lives. She goes and finds her father where he lives, walks in and is a garbage dump, bottles everywhere. This guy was just was living a horrible, horrible life, liquor bottles everywhere. He's on a cot in the corner. Uh, he's now 73 years old, suffering from diabetes. He had had a stroke. He had cataracts on both eyes. It's just a horrible existence. She comes up and says, Dad, it's me. I'm your little girl, the one you left in Africa. And he starts crying. And he said, I never meant to leave you. I'm so glad I finally got to see you. Um, and then uh, she said, that's okay, Dad. God took care of me. He went berserk. Don't ever mention God in my presence. He totally abandoned us. He abandoned us. He let your mother die. He ruined our whole family. He led us to Africa. Then he betrayed us. Nothing ever came of our time there. It was a waste of our lives. And she says, wait, stop listening. And she told him about the black preacher that she had just met in London and how the whole country had been evangelized through him. She said, it's all true, Daddy. Everybody knows about this boy. It's in all the papers. Suddenly the Holy Spirit fell on David Flood and he broke. Tears of sorrow and repentance flowed down his face and God restored him. A short time later he died. Although he was restored to the Lord, his family was still ruined. His, his, his legacy was these five children, all that were unsaved and, and, and embittered. They never turned back to God. She wrote the whole story down when she got home, wrote her book, Aggie, and then she gets cancer and dies a short time later. David Flood represents many Christians today. We've been disappointed. They've been disappointed, and now they're full of rage toward God. And this is where most rage against God begins, with disappointment. God may call us, burden us, send us, but he may make changes without including us in his sovereign plan, without our permission, right? Then when things don't go as we planned, we may, be, we may feel misled or betrayed by God. God understands our cry of pain and confusion remember what jesus said on the cross father why have you forsaken me instead of running away from god run to him instead of running away run to him no matter how down we get keep talking to god Elijah was praying to die. It was a lousy prayer, but he's, at least he's praying, right? Keep talking to God. Be honest with God. Tell him how you're really feeling about what's going on. And how you're struggling with disappointment and trust. Be honest. Tell him how you, he can take it. Read the book of Psalms. Half the book is David whining about something. And that's what we do. 
But he always comes around. By the end of the psalm, he's like, okay, God, you got this. He finally works through that. Be honest with God. He knows it anyway. He knows. And he won't zap us with lightning for being honest. He didn't kill Elijah ever. We'll see what he does do instead. Next week, don't miss next week, part two. He does something else. Instead of killing him, he does something amazing. God's amazing grace. Wait till you see what he does. Gives us all hope. And that's really what communion is. We get ready for communion here. That's what communion is all about. Communing with, with, with God, it's all about communing with our Heavenly Father, whether we're up or whether we're down. What, however we're, we're going. That's the gift that every one of us has as a Christian. We can talk to God anytime, anywhere, about anything. No matter how we're feeling. Do you have that gift? Have you ever put your faith in Jesus Christ? Have you ever received the gift of life from Jesus? Do you have that gift? Because you put your faith in Jesus Christ. His death on the cross in our place. He's paying for the sin so that we could have, be reconnected with God. Have you ever taken that step and become his child? John 1.12 is talking about that. In John 1 where he says, Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Have you ever become a child of God by believing in Jesus, by putting your faith in Jesus and what he's done for us? That's what communion is all about. It's remembering that Jesus died for us, what he has done for us, so that we could be reconnected to his Father, to God, to, our, to his Father God. Once again, sin has cut us off, has broken the relationship. But Jesus died on the cross. He gave his body and blood. The bread represents the body. The, the, the cup represents the blood. And it's a reminder of what he did. Have you ever put your faith in Jesus Christ? John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Has there ever been a time in your life where you said, God, I turn away from my life of sin, I walk away from it, I put my faith in Jesus. What he did on that cross for me, I put my faith in him, I give my life to him. The moment you do that, you become a child of God, and you can talk to God anytime, anywhere, about anything, no matter what's going on. Have you ever taken that step? As Christians, are we daily connecting with God? Is anything blocking our communion with God? That's what this communion time is a reminder. Is anything blocking? Get it out of the way. Maybe it's sin. Sin blocks it. Maybe it's disappointment. Maybe we stop talking to God. We've lost trust in him. Tell him. That's the starting point. Telling him how we really feel is the starting point to communion. We're going to take communion now. In just a moment, I'm going to pray, and then we're going to have some uh, music. And uh, when you feel ready, you can just come up and take the, the bread and the cup. You can take it back to your seat. You can take it up here. You can take it with someone alone, however you want to do it. There's no right or wrong way. There's only two reasons why you shouldn't. If you haven't put your faith in Jesus and you're not ready to do that, then wait. Nobody's looking around. We don't videotape. We don't keep track of who comes up. It's between you and God. Just wait. Or if there's a sin in your life and you're not ready to surrender it today. No, you don't have to be perfect. <laughs> no, not by a long shot. But you have to be willing to say, God, I'm surrendering it to you today. I want to be reconnected with you.
But if there's something you're not willing to surrender, then wait. But I hope everyone here does take it because you can. If you haven't put your faith in Christ, you can do that right now. If, you've, if there's something God wants you to surrender, you can do that right now. Every one of us can come up. The table's open if we will surrender our life and surrender whatever God is talking to us about. Let's pray. As we get ready to take this communion, as we get ready to commune with God, to reconnect with him, how is the Holy Spirit speaking to us? Maybe here today you've never put your faith in Jesus. You're not his child. You're not a child of God the Father yet. But you're ready to take that step today. God is inviting us today, every one of us. So the day of salvation is today. Right where you are, you can pray a prayer of faith. The prayer of faith. God, please forgive me for everything I've ever done that goes against your word and your will. Forgive me. I repent. I walk away from that old life. Forgive me because I'm putting my faith in Jesus. In the name of Jesus, that wonderful name of Jesus, I'm trusting his death on that cross, his resurrection from the dead. I'm trusting in Jesus to forgive me, to give me a new life. If you have prayed that prayer of faith, something radical, amazing, life-changing has happened to you. You have now the Holy Spirit living inside of you. You are now a child of God. You can talk to him. You can commune with him, not just this morning, but you can commune with him anytime, anywhere, about anything. Even if you've run a hundred miles away, you can turn back and he will take your hand instantly. Anytime. And I want to encourage you to let someone know if you've prayed that prayer of faith, let somebody know so that we can maybe tell me or tell a family member or friend, someone, let someone know so that we can encourage you and, and, and be excited for you. For the rest of us, as we go to this time of prayer, how is God speaking to us? Maybe there's something that's blocked our relationship. We need to get it out of the way. Maybe it's a sin. Maybe it's an attitude. Maybe it's disappointment. You've realized today, maybe for the first time, realize that you are disappointed. We are disappointed in something. And we realize that, we have to, that God wants us to trust him. That he has a purpose. But we still need to wrestle with that with him, and that's okay. It's okay. To tell God how we really feel. To pour our heart out before him. To wrestle with him. He's a good wrestler. Just ask some of the people in the Bible. Ask Jacob. 
Father, we pray that every one of us could really commune with you in honesty. I pray for your mercy and grace in this communion time to help us work through pain and disappointment and struggles and entrusting you, waiting to see what your purpose is. Even if we don't see it till we get to heaven, knowing that you have a purpose, a loving purpose. You loved us enough to give us your son, Jesus, to die in our place. We know that you love us enough to take us through this life with a good purpose. Pray this in Jesus' name.